Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, it's me, Miles, DR, and Kaya, as usual, talking about the news that you didn't know from the past week, the underreported news of the week. Then I sit down with theologian and author Candace Bembaugh about her new book, Red Lip Theology, for church girls who've considered tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. I learned so much. We chatted about heartache, loss, forgiveness, identity, and the empowerment of women who may struggle with feeling loved and nurtured by church culture. Now, my advice for this week is always to be open to learn. In this episode with Candace, she, you'll hear it, but there is a part where she really challenges the way that I thought about something. I'm like, oh my goodness, you did it. Thank you. Like, oh, yes, yes. I thought I knew. I thought I was doing the thing that was progressive and I didn't even realize that it wasn't there. She really pushed me. Be open to being pushed. Here we go. Y'all, my news this week is from the LA Times. Um, And it kind of was serendipitous how this news came to me. Um, I was on the phone this week with some of my Maestro team members and Naima Keith. Naima um, is VP of Education and Programming at LACMA, among among other things. She's a brilliant curator and has been in the art space jamming for a very long time. So we were very honored to have the opportunity to speak with her. But what she brought to our attention, among many other things, brilliant things, is Destination Crenshaw, which we actually had not heard of. Um, And so as the LA Times article points out, you know, Destination Crenshaw is a little over a mile of Crenshaw Boulevard, which is essentially going to be transformed um, into an arts corridor. Um, And so it's super exciting. And I really wanted to dig in more about how this all came to be, which the article doesn't necessarily highlight, but I encourage you all to go to DestinationCrenshaw.LA to learn more information, um, because I just think this is such an incredible project that really came out of kind of a crisis in Crenshaw and then Black folks getting together to organize um, and then having an answer that is just going to be so compelling and I think impact Um, So many people um, of all ages, all hues, actually, not just Black folks, for such a long time to come. But for y'all that don't know, Crenshaw Boulevard is really the spine of the Los Angeles Black community. Um, And some of this I'm reading from DestinationCrenshaw.LA, so I want to give them them, um, their glory on this. Um, So, you know, Crenshaw has always been a place of dynamic expression, Black culture, Black economic development, Black economic legacy. And ultimately, the corridor and Destination Crenshaw came to be because at one point, the city was planning to put a train on Crenshaw Boulevard. Um, and so the it, it was planned for, you know, this this train to go from well, through Crenshaw, really, to LAX, to, Los, to the, the airport in Los Angeles, really slicing through the heart of, you know, this Black main thoroughfare. And we've seen this done time and time again through eminent domain in so many cities, and this has been happening over decades. Um, and what would have happened is that if this train 
was put there on Crenshaw, it would have uprooted 300 business parking spaces, 400 trees, obviously impacting business, impacting culture in that thoroughfare. And it, it, there, there's also an argument, too, about cultural erasure that would have happened, too, with this with this train going through Crenshaw. But as the website points out for Destination Crenshaw, Black Los Angeles had a plan and really a creative, collaborative and community led response to this injustice really brought this whole idea around Destination Crenshaw. So it's exciting to see that, you know, all these folks came together um, with the goal of one, continuing to preserve and and really breathe the the creativity and the resilience and the, the potential of this community, but also, you know, drive economic and cultural re- revitalization to the Crenshaw Corridor. So it's just exciting to see how this has all come together. I'm I'm so excited to see, you know, when it comes to be. It's it's not planned to debut in ter- in, until fall of 2022. Some of the artists that are participating are just, you know, just top artists, top black artists, folks like Kehinde Wiley, and we're gonna they're gonna they're gonna be these huge sculptures, and all of the art pieces really having having meaning and in, in contextualization in terms of. Black identity, um, Black power, um, the legacy of, of, of Black folks in this country. So all that to say, check out the LA Times article. There are more details there, obviously. But also, you know, go directly to the source, DestinationCrenshaw.LA. Shout out to Naomi Keith again for putting us on. And we're so super excited to continue to follow this program and to be there at its debut. Today, my news is truly disappointing. Um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is calling on licensed professionals and members of the general public to report the parents of transgender minors to state authorities if it appears the minors are receiving gender-affirming medical care. This is another case of people using legislation, power, in order to perpetuate transphobia and to also control the destinies of uh, other people's lives. And I have been very open on this podcast and everywhere else about um, being non-binary, being a part of the trans community, and also just having um, just different expressions of friends in my life who have all engaged with um, some type of uh, gender-affirming medical procedures or uh, medical medical attention. And what I've noticed is when you let trans people have access to that care, you really help people activate their lives. People, um, excuse me, trans people do not feel activated if uh, they could not express what is happening on the inside and that all of that does not include medical um medical care that does not always mean that's what will happen but oftentimes it does for a lot a lot and a lot of trans people and if you can get that care earlier if you can activate um and express yourself and articulate yourself earlier on in life because you because you know uh, your gender identity you have supporters parents who are willing to do that there should not be legislation that is stopping that from happening. It's truly disgusting. I think this is a huge pushback to the world changing and expanding around gender conversations. And it's a really disgusting um, attempt at 
uh, control and, and hatred. And I hope people um, resist this. I hope this brings in um, more uh, attention to why nonprofits like For the Girls that helps Black trans um, people get gender affirming surgeries who may not have it cost efficient. Um, I hope people understand why that's necessary. I hope people um, see how fundamental um, helping trans folks is and how protecting trans kids really, to me, it's, it's kind of one of the big works of our generation because these moments are evil and they're going to keep on happening and we have to be just as awake um, around, you know, just essentially civil rights being just trampled over. Um, that's my news. It is not uh, usually the more lighter pop culture fun news that I like to bring to the podcast because um, it's it's because uh, podcast can already be heavy because of all the things we talk about. But it is the news that really just like gut wrenched me this week, and I really wanted to talk about it, and I really wanted to you know spotlight <laughs> um, nonprofits like for the girls, um, as well as you know, let people know that, you know, everywhere everywhere is uh, changing and resisting at different paces and uh, together through education and understanding things around gender, we can all help um, trans people live safer and fuller lives. Don't go anywhere. More Podtake the People's coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. My news is about ambulance rides and it's actually two, two articles. 
The first is uh, by Boston University, bu.edu, and it is your race may factor in which ER an ambulance takes you to. And then the other one is an Axios called Ambulance Rides Are Getting a Lot More Expensive. So I'm, I'm talking about these in relationship to each other because uh, I was fascinated at first by Ambulance Rides because of a conversation that started online that was actually about Uber, because there is a program in Uber Health that actually helps to transfer people that are not in emergencies, uh, that just need to go to and from uh, a hospital. And I thought that was interesting. But there was another conversation that was sparking on Twitter, uh, probably, I don't know, six or seven months ago, that was people that were using Uber and Lyft to go to urgent care, to go to emergency rooms, because it was much cheaper than an ambulance, but also in some ways riskier, right? Because when you go in an ambulance, there are medical professionals that take you. When you go in an Uber, if you're bleeding internally, externally, if you are having a real health issue, like a heart attack in the back of an Uber, you know, the Uber driver has no clue what to do with you. So that's what got me interested in this. And as you can imagine, there are racial disparities that show up. And what was really wild is that in a first of its kind study, researchers at BU School of Medicine showed the difference between EMS transport destinations of Black and Hispanic patients with regard to white counterparts. So some interesting things that came out of the BU study. The first is that they showed that 40% of patients, regardless of race, were actually were not taken to the nearest hospital. So that is, you know, my, my assumption was always that you'd be taken to like the closest hospital, but they they find that that is not the case. The other thing they do is that they use Medicare claims data to divide patients based on zip code they live in and, and other identifiers. And what they show is that there were sizable differences by race and ethnicity in which medical centers patients were brought to by the EMS. And they showed, and I quote, the widest disparities were seen in larger urban areas with multiple hospitals and emergency departments within the vicinity. The study also found that Black and Hispanic patients were more likely to be transported to a, quote, safety net hospital, a type of medical center that by legal obligation or mission provides health care for individuals regardless of their insurance status compared to their white counterparts living in the same zip code. That was really interesting to me to see the way that race shows up with things like, where does the ambulance take you? And again, with no real indication of whether you have health insurance at that moment or not, because it's the ambulance and it's it's an emergency. So that was interesting. But the other part of my news comes from a report that shows that ambulance rides are getting more expensive. And it's a report that was put out by FAIR Health, Fair Health. And I'm interested in this because we often talk about the importance of having health insurance, but health insurance, just having health insurance is not often enough. So remember that you don't get to choose your ambulance provider. Like when you call 911, you get whoever comes, whether it's the the fire department or a private vendor, like you don't, it's rare that you get to choose, especially in an emergency. And here's the thing is that the report shows that private insurers average payment for those rides jumped by 56% between 2017 and 2020 from $486 to $758. And that's for what's called the advanced life support uh, that insures as a charge for advanced life support. And the other thing is that it shows that ambulance operators' sticker prices before accounting for discounts negotiated with insurers have risen 22% over the same period and are now over $1,200. And here's the thing, Medicare the average reimbursement for advanced life support ambulance rides only increased by 5%, so not at the rate of the increases of the cost. 
And I say this because like, A, there's a lot that I didn't know about ambulance costs, but for people, you know, incomes are not increasing. Inflation's increasing. If anything, that like, you know, people are not having more money to spend and the money they're spending is not going as far as it was going before. But you think about things like the cost of ambulances that people need in emergencies and literally like it is just going much higher. What I didn't know is that some states have protections against surprise ground ambulance billing. And those states are Colorado, Delaware, Florida, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, New York, Ohio, Vermont, and West Virginia. But then there are states like California, Florida, Colorado, Texas, Illinois, Washington, and Wisconsin, where more than two-thirds of emergency ambulance rides include an out-of-network charge for ambulance-related services, which essentially is like a surprise a surprise bill. It blew my mind. I want us to keep talking about the disparities and just like the cost of healthcare because I, when I was new to this conversation, I thought that having access to health insurance was the big thing, but health insurance that doesn't cover the cost of the things you need is actually not necessarily a big win. And things like ambulance rides are huge because if you don't know what the cost is going to be, some people just don't go get care, which is actually worse. Or they're using something like Uber or Lyft, and if they have an actual emergency in the back of it, the person driving is not equipped at all to deal with it. So I wanted to bring it here because it blew my mind and I wanted to share. My news this week is about an exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of the Arts, which is running from the end of March through the end of July called Guarding the Art. The thing about this exhibition is that it has been curated by the museum's security guards. Now, most of you know that when a museum is curating a new exhibit, they bring in amazing, talented artists and curators from, you know, either on the museum staff or from all around the country or in some cases all around the world to pick the things that will be in in the exhibit to bring continuity to whatever is the whatever is being put up for the exhibit. But this is actually a very different exhibit because the curators, as I said, are the museum's security guards. A trustee of the museum, Amy Elias, came up with the idea in conversation with other trustees about ways to fulfill the museum's commitment to be more inclusive and more representative of the community. I think that there are a lot of companies that and organizations that are talking the talk about co-creating with the community or being in partnership with the community or being more reflective of the community. And this one is actually doing it in a very interesting uh, way, in a way that puts their money where their mouth is, frankly. Each of the security cards chose pieces from the museum's collection for the exhibit And of the 45 guards on staff, 17 applied to be curators on this project. These guards are come from a variety of walks of life. They're not just security guards. Some of them are artists or chefs. Some are musicians and scholars. Some are writers. Some are dog walkers. Some are veterans. Some are grandmothers and more. And they've been able to collaborate with the museum's curators. They've been able to conduct research. They are being mentored and professionally developed by renowned art historian and curator, Dr. Lowry Stokes Sims. And most importantly, they are being paid for this additional time and responsibilities. These guards have the experience of being in the room with these pieces all the time. And many of them have perspectives on the pieces. Many of them um, have 
are, are the first line of communication with museum goers who oftentimes, especially in our communities, are afraid or feel intimidated about going into museums and interacting with art in this way. But the security guard is the person who you can always, you know, connect with at the museum. Um, and these folks, some of whom have been working at the museum for 10 or 12 or 13 years, these folks have now had the opportunity to bring the pieces that resonate with them, that speak to them, or that they want the community to see to life. I brought this article to the pod because I think that it's an amazing, I, I think number one, it, it, it comes from an asset-based way of thinking. Our communities have tremendous assets in them, and just because they look like security guards or whoever else, we don't always um, invest in and give opportunity to the assets that are in our community. And this is this is something very, very different. Um, the guards have had a tremendous time in enjoying themselves, having fun um, curating this exhibit. Some of them are working their way through school, and so the additional pay is actually helpful. I think another reason why I brought this to the pod is because um, it sort of closes the gap between the highbrow world of modern art and regular, regular people in the community. It shows that um, our community members, through the security guards, have an appreciation for art, want to interact with art, want to engage our community in the world of art. And um, I just thought that it would be, I brought it also to the pod because I thought that it would be a great example of ways of a model, I guess, that shows that when institutions trust community members, co-create with community members, bring community members in as equal partners, magical things happen. I am lucky that I live in Washington, D.C., and I can, you know, take the 45-minute drive up to Baltimore. This exhibition, Guarding the Arts, is running from March 22nd through the end of July, and I would encourage us all to go and see it. Moreover, I encourage you in your organization, in your corporation, and wherever you work, to think about ways that you might bring the community members who work with you in your organization into the real work that you're doing every day. I think the payoff is huge. Onward with Black History Year, as Kai would say, and March is Women History's Month. This week, we have Candace Bimbao want to talk about discovering freedom in a progressive Christian faith that incorporates activism, feminism, and radical authenticity. In Red Lip Theology, she writes powerfully about experiences at the heart of her Black womanhood. In honoring her single mother's love and triumphs and mourning her unexpected passing, she finds herself forced to shed restrictions she'd been taught to place in the practice of her faith. And by embracing alternative spirituality and womanist theology and confronting conventional attitudes on body positivity and LGBTQ rights, Candace helps to challenge religious institutions, faith leaders, and communities to reimagine how faith can be a tool of liberation and transformation for women and girls and all of us. Here we go. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Take the People's coming. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Candice, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be So, you know, I've known you forever, it seems like, on Twitter, but we haven't really had any, like, real discussions like this. And it's uh, it's great because your book just came out, Red Lip Theology, and I've seen the tweets, but now I got to read the text. Can, before we start talking about the book, though, can you talk about your journey? What was the journey to becoming an author? Like, how did you, and as somebody who's written a book, woo, um, writing a book, almost killed me. It was such a wild process. Oh but what God, was your journey yeah. to this and, and why theology? Like, why God? So part of it is because, one, um, we don't have many opportunities for Black women, especially Black millennial women, to have conversations about faith and what spirituality means and does for them. And as somebody who attended seminary, went on to, um, I graduated from Duke, and I just wanted to have deeper conversations about faith that one, that didn't center cishet Black men. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted Black women to know that it was possible to have conversations about faith that allowed them to lean into the creativity and the uniqueness of who they are. And Red Lip Theology gave me the opportunity to do that. And it almost killed me, too. <laughs> like, people, I think people don't realize just how isolating, and I didn't, so many people do know, how isolating writing a book actually can be and what it means to construct this argument that goes beyond tweets into something that everybody can can take a part of. And so, but I am grateful that I got the opportunity to do it and that people have been able to resonate with it in the ways that they have. There's so many gems in here. And let me just start with some of the things that really struck with me. That I was like, oh, I got to get Candace to talk about this. And then we'll zoom out to some of the big things. But I was like, let me just start with the meat. So you write on you write early in the book something that I had not even like I literally had never I I didn't have the language for this. Uh, you wrote as a theological discourse, creation care is just what its name suggests. It's the idea we should actually care about creation. God took such great time and attention to bring creation into being. Humanity should do more to honor and protect it. And I literally had never heard of like this idea of creation care. Like that was I just hadn't heard of that. And then you go on to talk about its important importance in blackness and I which how did you I don't know like can you can you help us understand this like is this is it like is this something I should have known and just didn't know is this like has always been a big thing is this new and so that's the problem with with theological education right I mean I think that's also the problem with writ large education is that we have these conversations in institutions and in the ivory towers that impact so many people 
but everyone doesn't get to take part of and part of them, right? And so before I got to do, before I went to seminary, I didn't know that there was an entire discourse and theological conversation around creation care. Like, I didn't know that there were people who were really studying and advocating for us to think much more interdependently about the work that we, about the work that we do and the ways that we interact with the rest of creation. And for me, like, I mean, I knew that I had friends who were vegan. I knew that I had family members who were trying to minimize their carbon footprint. I was trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to do the same thing. Um, and I knew that a lot of it stemmed from ethical reasons because they shared those reasons. And at the same time, there was a lot of theological grounding and footing with it that sometimes they couldn't articulate because they didn't necessarily have the language for it. But again, that's the, that is always the downfall of the ways that education can be its own elitist product, its own elitist project. And so getting with in the conversation of, of uh, creation care and immersing myself, it was also because at the time I went to, and I talk about this in the book, at the time I went to seminary, like that, that 2012 to 2015 moment, so much was happening in the world. Um, there were so, I mean, if your book, my, I, I talk about uh, Trayvon's death and the, and the kind of birth of um, what, what we know to be um, the BLM movement and with Kia Boyd and Michael Brown. And so you had all of these deaths and murders in this moment, and you have Black people arguing and fighting and petitioning for folks to really hear us as it relates to what it means to honor Black life. And at the same time, I'm in these classes that are talking about um, creation and what it means for us to care for creation. And it's like, okay, so if we're going to have a conversation about humanity as part of creation care, then we also need to have a fuller conversation about what it looks like for, for us to, to take up the, um, the work of protecting Black life as an ethic of creation care. And so it what is so it, it became for me like how do we use this discourse that already exists as a as a larger to push a larger and broader conversation that directly impacts what we are saying about who we think God is and who we think the world should be in relationship to that. One of the things that I remember from writing my book is is how much writing it and writing so much made me sort of really come to terms and think through a host of things. How did you grow in the process of writing the book? Like, what was that like? Especially a book about God, and it's so personal. You know, I'm going to ask you about um, about your father and your mother and that, and that relationship in a minute. But but before we get there, I would love to know how you grew in writing. Part of it was, you know, I am I'm I'm writing my way out of a a difficult time, right? Like um the loss of my mother and the ways that so many other things happened to me that were really totalizing. 
And I am writing about that time in a way that pushes for me to, to, to not only get beyond it, but write myself free in a way. Right. And so it, it, part of it required that I go back to those moments and, and think about, um, reflect on what I was thinking, reflect on what I was feeling, reflect on who I understood God to be to me in that moment and how, how God has evolved, that relationship has evolved, how I've grown from it. I mean, I wrote, I wrote this book in a year and the entire time I was, I, I was working with the same therapist that I had been working with and still am since my mom passed. And so we've been working together since January of 2016. And so she was able to be there as part of that process for me. So when there are moments where I was like, I need, I need to talk through <laughs> this with you because I'm writing this and this is coming up. One, it was important for me to do that. But two, it was also important for me to hear her say things like, I am really proud of the work that you've done. Like, let's sit here and just honor how far you've come. Let's sit here and just celebrate the ways that even this moment you've been healed from. And so, like, I think I think the truth for me is that when you allow yourself to be opened to the process of, of not only just book writing, but telling your story and what that journey will do for you. When you allow yourself to be open to however that will transform you, you can't help but be changed, right? So it has been the joy, really, of this last month since the book has been out to have conversations with people who've read it who have been and are on similar journeys and they mark a passage to me that really resonated. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's exactly how I felt when I was writing it. And so, yeah, I think when you allow yourself to just be open to the transformation, you can't help but be changed. And for me, that was, what I wanted this book to do. I wanted this book to be something that um, the vulnerability and even the kind of gracious accountability that I give, that I mirror in myself, that I want to also mirror and hold um, to institutions. I wanted people to be able to do that for themselves so that they could be whole, so that they could be free. And it's been it, it's been incredible to watch that actualize and people that I may never ever meet, but they shared that with me. I that that resonates so much with me. Now I want to talk about the you know this chapter made me tear up partly because my mother left when I was three and is still alive and around, but just it was not a part of my life for a host of reasons. Um, and in the chapter where you write about your dad, I like I was reading it and. You know, the scene where you're in the parking lot, all this. I was like, okay. I was like, I got it. And and I was like, okay, where, what is what does God have to do with this? I got it. Like, I get the story. And then, Candace, it was, I'm reading. I'm just ready to preach. I'm like, you better go ahead and write this chapter. <laughs> let me read the, um, let me read the part. I can't read the whole chapter to everybody because y'all need to buy the book. But let me start here. And then let's see if we can walk through this together, which is really code for, can you help us? But 
You said, I could no longer unsee the danger in assigning gender to God. Beyond just saying God is a man, assigning the male gender to God potentially shapes how we, especially Black Christians, see all men. And I was with you. And I was like, okay, cool. And then, boom, boom, it kept going. I was like, okay, let me, wait, I think I highlighted the next one. Okay. And then you said, in part, ungendering God also freed me from the idea God has favorites and my dad was one of them. And I was like, okay, ungendering God. And then, let me, this is the last thing I got to say, Candice, because you you wrote this chapter. It, so I won't I won't quote this, but then you you talked about both the tension between wearing a God as a black woman shirt and and the and the freedom that ungendering God has given you. And and you wrote for me, God's love makes a difference. What do I lose when I ungender God? I abandon the notion that there are some who are outside of God's identity, and therefore. God's love. Y'all, she is preaching and hallelujah. Like, you did that, Candace. This chapter, I mean, all the chapters, but like, as a reader reading it, I was like, okay, dad, got it, got it. And then I was like, okay, not God as a man. Then I was like, okay, un- you took me there. Can you talk about how you got to this as like an understanding? Yeah, it. I had to be very, uh, again, this is this is my therapy phase live. Having a conversation with my therapist um, about what, about the level of resentment that I had towards my father and how I felt like he was thriving. Like in my mind, um, I don't, I don't understand how you have a child in the world, um, a seed in the world that you don't care how it's growing. Like that just that I, 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 and I, and here's the thing. I do understand that for some people, there are extenuating circumstances that keep them from being parents, whatever, what have you. And, but at the same token, I'm somebody who's like, I like, how could you not care what's happening to me? And because I, I had some level of access and proximity to him. I was still able to see how he was thriving in the world and how he was moving in the world. And that really just made me mad. (laughs) And so I was like, every time I heard God as he and God as this like loving father who I was just like, yeah, that's not, that's not how I understand my own father. I'm tired of he pronouns because you only use that for men. Um, and then when I looked up and saw that the majority of the leadership is not all or the bulk of the leadership and my churches were men, it wasn't difficult for me to make those connections. And I was like, oh, God and my daddy are homeboys. Like, that's why his life <laughs> is not... Um, that's why he's not suffering because he's not being an active father to me. And so therapy really helped me to come to terms with the resentment I had around that. And, and a conversation that I had with my therapist, but also the steps that I wanted a much more, when I think about God, I think about a majestic holy, powerful, intimate, close, connected, caring, empathetic being. And I wanted words. I wanted phrases. 
I wanted descriptors that I didn't use for anybody else when I was talking about God, right? And so what was beautiful was that woman's theology and wearing my I Met God, she's black shirt and referring to God as her felt very normal to me because I think it's I think it's in I think if we were to do an exercise where we ask people to describe God in um using using the descriptors of the person who's been the most affirming, the most closest, the the the, the most godlike in our lives, I think that we'll all get different um different descriptions, but they're going to be the people who have loved and nurtured us. And I think that God is supposed to be that intimate and that personal to us. And so seeing God as, and referring to God as her wasn't that difficult because of the mother that I had. And that if I was to describe God in that way, God would be reflected in my mind. But at the same time, I knew that I wanted, I wanted a way I needed to articulate God in a way that was not common and that restored some of the the majesty and the holiness. And as even I was being held accountable and, and moving out of ways that saw people and gender and identity in these binary ways, like I wanted I wanted how I talked and spoke about God to be reflected there as well. That like we're not that that this binary if this binary doesn't hold true for humanity, then it definitely doesn't hold true for God. And so um it was it was all of those factors converging in this moment that was like, yeah, like I get to I get to think differently about who God is. Because I need to. And why do you call, in that same vein, in a later part of the book, you call God the ultimate parent instead of like a father or mother? Why? What can you explain to us why you do that? Yeah, I mean, for for that reason, in and of itself, is that like I think that we, one, I think that the more that we kind of abandon the idea that we are all stuck in this in this in this binary it gives us more room to, to recognize the expanse, how expansive creation, how expansive humanity is, and just how deeply expansive God is, right? That, like, that is the capacity that God has to be all that we need is is not encompassed in a gender. Like, it's not encompassed in... And these words or these descriptors that already fail to fully articulate what we need to say anyway. Like, for as expansive as language is, language is always selling us because it can never fully give us what we need to talk about to talk about God or to talk about anything. Like, I mean, think about how many times in conversation we said something like, for lack of a better word. Or I'm trying to find a word here. I'm trying to because even without us knowing all of the words, <laughs> that language still does not give us the full breadth and weight of what we're trying to articulate. And I think that if that is true anywhere, 
is true in in what and how we describe the holy things, the sacred things, that we're always trying to grope towards better language. Um, and so in our growth towards that, it matters to journey towards the more expansive language. Boom. There are two questions that we ask everybody on the pod. The first is, what do you say to people who have done everything they were supposed to do? The people who called, emailed, they stood in the street, they read your book, they read my book, they did all the things and the world hasn't changed in the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? Um, yeah, I first say that I hear them and um, I stand with them and in and, and whatever space they need to hold that accountable to, to the fact that it should be different. Um, I think that too often we try to rush we try to rush to answers and we try to justify, especially in church spaces and in religious spaces, we try to justify with, you know, we'll just hold on or, you know, if if it hasn't, then that means X, Y, and Z. And the truth is, like, some things can just stink. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And some things can, and, and, and there are other structures and systems that are at work that are just not fair. And what does what does it mean to be in community with you and not help to hold space for that? Um, I I believe that as somebody who is in community and knows what it's like for for some for something to no matter how much I've tried to never be able to be different, to never be able to be right. It just means, it just matters to hold the space to grieve that and to also say that even when, and I truly believe this, that even when things are not right, that things can still be good and that I, I will hold space with you until the good things that are already present can find a way to shine even brighter um, so that you can you can see them and hold close and hold tight to them until more until more good things can come. And the last question is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Oh, <laughs> so this is from my grandma and I put it in a book and it is actually what I hold close to is especially as a black woman, like my my grandmother told me white people put on their they underwear, she said draws, just like I do, <laughs> one leg at a time. And she said, now if you find a white person that could put their drawers on top of their head and some and somehow they end up wearing them the same way you do, now that's a white person worth listening to. But until you meet that white person, don't ever feel intimidated at all by them because they're just like you. Um, she never wanted me to feel inferior. She never wanted me to believe that there was something that I could not do simply because of the circumstances of my life, right? And I have, although she meant that in like one specific context, as I get older, I'm able to know the broader weight and breadth of what she was trying to say to me. And I've held on to that. Like there have been moments where, because we talked 
and, and you know it in all of our circles and, and even in, in our professional, other professional spaces, we talk about imposter syndrome. We talk about the feeling of believing that who we are is not enough for the places that we are being invited into and for the situations that we're showing up in. And I feel that myself at times. And so I have to remember, even if it is just as like blunt as my grandma did, like, Candace, everybody in this room put their drive on one leg at a time, just like you did today. Breathe. Know that you have done whatever you needed to do to earn to earn the space and the right to be in this room. Be grateful for the opportunity. Show up with that confidence and show up with that gratitude. And I have had to hold on to that for myself. I've had to pass that, and I hope to pass that on as much as I can, not only to to my colleagues and my peers, but to younger folks who come behind me, especially those of us who come from from family structures and from communities that would lead us to believe that we don't deserve to be in the spaces that we're in. I can't let any structure, I can't let any principality, and you want to use churchy language, I can't let anything cause me to believe that I am any less deserving of opportunities that I've worked for or opportunities that I've been graced with simply because my daddy ain't here. Boom. Can you tell us the book one more time and where people can get it? So Redlet Theology is everywhere that books are sold. Um, the subtitle is for church girls to consider tithing to the beauty supply store when Sunday morning isn't enough. You can get it wherever you get your books. Um, definitely would encourage you to get it at an independent bookstore because that is where we need um, a lot of our dollars uh, to, to go towards, especially as COVID has impacted a lot of our, our um, independent and small and small businesses. Um, but yeah, it is, it's out in the world. It's been out in the world a month. I am so, so grateful uh, for, for everyone's support. Cool. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank you, friend. I had a, I had a ball. I really appreciated this. I like, I can check this off of like my list because I told all of my friends I was gonna be on Pipex people. So I am I'm kind of I'm kind of a big deal right now in the group chat. <laughs> Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti. And executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. 
You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.